0: Morning once again, church, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. We are going to be in Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Daniel chapter 5. Please turn with me there. As you're turning there, I do have some uh, sad news to share uh, so um, Bible Baptist Church in Kokomo is a church that Emily grew up going to it 's a church that her parents still go to it 's a church we were married in, and uh, they ha- uh, experienced somewhat of a tr- uh, tragedy this last week there. Uh, Paul Weaver, their longtime youth pastor, uh, unexpectedly passed away. Uh, he had just—he was there. He was Emily's youth pastor, and he had just a few months ago. Uh, he and his wife—they uh, have two girls in college. And he and his wife had just moved to Arizona to be a part of a ministry out there, and um, he uh, went on a bike ride this last week, and and just passed away suddenly and unexpectedly on the bike ride. And so, uh, heartbreaking, obviously for the family and for the church. And so. Um, certainly, uh, we want to be keeping them in our, in our prayers. So, um. Yeah, we, uh, if you know anyone at Bible Baptist, I know I'm, I'm, they would appreciate you reaching out. Uh, when Pastor Kevin died, I know it meant a lot to me when uh, people from other churches reached out to me and just let me know they were praying for me and for people in our church. And so I know it would mean a lot to them. If, if you do know anyone there, to reach out. Reach out to their pastor. Keith is their, is their pastor's name, and you'd certainly be praying for him. So let's before we jump into Daniel chapter 5, let's go before the Lord in prayer, and let's pray for our brothers and sisters at Bible Baptist Church. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you this morning, Um, in some ways uh, there's a a paradox, we're going to talk about it this morning even, God, but um, God, you are so good and you are so worthy to be praised, you are high and lifted up, you are on your throne, you are exalted, You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and you are sovereign and in control, God. And yet, um, at the same time, all of those things are true, Lord. Sometimes uh, tragedies happen, God, and we don't always know why, Lord. And yet, it doesn't change the fact that you are sovereign and you are in control, (laughs) And yet that doesn't change the fact of how painful some of these things can be to walk through, Lord. So we just pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in Christ at Bible Baptist this morning, Lord, even as they uh, gather together uh, this morning uh, for the first time in a church service um, since this happened. And we just ask that your spirit would minister in such a powerful and incredible way in that room this morning, God. Even right now, this very moment, God, we just pray uh, that they would be comforted. And even in just the the shock of something that seems so um, just senseless and unexpected, Lord, we know um, that you are a comfort and a healer. And so we just ask and pray that you would move. We pray for um, Pastor Keith as he leads his church through this this difficult time. We pray for uh, Paul's family, Lord, as they especially mourn and grieve. And again, we just ask that you would draw near, Lord. We thank you that we can come to you at all times with all things, Lord, and that nothing takes you by surprise. We praise you for that. We thank you for what we're going to see in your word this morning, Lord, about your faithfulness, God. Once again, you are faithful to your people in exile in Daniel chapter 5, and we just have so much to learn from that, God. So help us to have open hearts to hear the truth from your word this morning. Give me a humble heart as I preach it. Guard my words, and may you just, God, do a powerful thing in us and through us this morning, Lord. This is all for nothing uh, if you aren't working, God, and none of this means anything if jesus did not raise from the dead but jesus did raise from the dead and that changes everything god so now we have new eyes to see your word and new hearts because of what jesus did on the cross so we praise you for that work and move in this place today we pray in jesus name Amen. Well, uh, last Sunday evening, we had the privilege of Les Peters from Guatemala coming and sharing. Many of you were here to listen to uh, that update and what the Lord is doing in Guatemala. We took a trip to Guatemala this last summer, and we're taking another one in September. And so we're praying that many of you will be able to join us uh, in September to go back to Guatemala. One of the many highlights of the Guatemala trip this summer was a hike down into a sinkhole. It should have a picture for you. Pictures don't do it justice, but this is me taking. You can see barely there the team uh, is kind of right. You see there are little shiny heads. And then way up there is the bright light of... of the ground, and then it, there's a sinkhole. And then I kind of went up on a higher level then and took this picture of the team. And so we hiked down into that. And it, it, because it had rained uh, recently before, the path was just super muddy. It was very treacherous. And it was specifically treacherous uh, for one person on our team who just simply did not have the right shoes for something like this. I'm not going to say her name, but it does rhyme with uh, Shmam Shmazy. And uh, okay, it was Pam Frazy. Sorry, Pam. And her shoes just as the moment she stepped into any mud, it was I don't know there was just no tread. She would have I think she literally would have done better on roller skates going down uh, than she did on the with those shoes. But thankfully we had strategically brought with us a mountain man uh, named Cody Calvin, who is probably the single-handedly the most prepared man for anything I've ever met. And he had uh, three pairs of the exact right shoes one one right pair and then two backups. So uh, but so he was just ready for anything. And so he with Pam with her roller skates on, um, uh, he kind of led the way, and then she kind of grabbed onto his arm, and we kind of made this, this line as we slowly made our way down into the sinkhole, and I kind of took up the rear, and the whole way down, I could just hear Cody saying things to the group, like uh, and especially to Pam, like, uh, okay, it's okay, don't worry, I'm right here, we got this, we're just going to go nice and slow, it's going to be okay, we're going to make it stake your time, I've got you, I'm not going anywhere, okay, it's going to be okay, and we very, very, very slowly, <laughs> with Pam and Cody leading the way, made our way down into the sinkhole, and thankfully, uh, we, we all made it down, and I think Pam even made it back out, Did she? has anyone seen Pam actually since, oh good, she's right there, okay, so she would made it back out too, uh, we made it, and uh, praise the Lord for that. So the question is, like, why did Cody, as, as he's leading Pam down and our, kind of our whole group down slowly, why does he keep repeating himself and saying the same thing, right, over and over again? It's okay. I'm right here. It's okay. We're going to make it. Just go slow. Why, why does he keep repeating himself? Was he worried that Pam was just going to bail halfway down, right, just all of a sudden she that... Uh, that uh, she's just going to be like, okay, never mind, I got it from here, thank you, and just like take off and slide on a rear end down the rest of the way. No, that wasn't a concern. But uh, Pam and really all of us were a little nervous. So even though intellectually she knew that Cody wasn't going anywhere, that constant reminder of his presence was exactly what she needed in order to make it to the bottom of the sinkhole and back out again. The truth is, it can be a huge comfort to hear what we know over and over and over again, can't it? I was thinking about that this week as I studied Daniel chapter 5 because honestly, this story as we're about to read it feels familiar. It's a foreign king and gets a message from God that he initially doesn't understand So he needs someone to translate it for him. And none of the king's horses and none of the king's men can put this message back together again for this king. And so what do they do? They call Daniel, and Daniel's going to get trotted out once again, and he's going to translate the message. The overarching theme of the story in this chapter is really the same as the overarching theme of all the stories we've already seen in Daniel, which is that God is faithful to his people even when they are in exile that's why you see on your screen the title of the first half of daniel is life in babylon how do we live in exile and the reminder that god's people needed over and over and over and over again was i'm still here (laughs) it's okay I'm not going anywhere. Things might look dark and scary and slippery, but I am still. Here we saw that in Daniel chapter 1, right? God is faithful to provide for his people when they can't eat the king's food, and then again in Daniel chapter 2, God was faithful to show Daniel the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the interpretation. And then Daniel chapter 3, God was faithful to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace after they didn't bow down. Daniel chapter 4, God was faithful once again to show Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then he humbles Nebuchadnezzar. Until Nebuchadnezzar learns that God is indeed God and then he restores the kingdom back to him. And now we're in Daniel chapter 5 and once again we're going to see God's faithfulness to his people in exile once again. and So you might wonder as we study Daniel, why does God give us these stories that just make the same point over and over and over and over again? The answer... Sometimes we need to hear the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, don't we? We need to keep being reminded of God's faithfulness as we look around in the world and wonder sometimes, like, how long, oh Lord, are things going to be like this? That's the book of Daniel. Daniel. The book of Daniel is a constant reminder to God's people who are living in dire, difficult circumstances that he has never stopped working, that he's still in control, he's still on the throne. Even though things look bad, God never stopped being faithful to his people. So we're going to see that. Look with me now at Daniel chapter 5. We're going to look at this story. It's a great story. We're going to see once again how God is faithful to his people. The events in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, begins in 605 BC, and now in Daniel chapter 5, it's many years later in 539 BC. So remember, with BC, the numbers get smaller as we get later. So it's, we're in 539 BC, and Daniel is about 80 years old, and there's a new king in charge now, Belshazzar, not to be confused with Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, but the new king is just Belshazzar. And things in Daniel chapter 5, spoiler alert, are about to go really poorly for Belshazzar. In fact, this is a story about Belshazzar's last night as king. So let's take a look at this story. The story is going to unfold for us in four distinct scenes. So the first scene of this story, we see a blasphemous banquet. A blasphemous banquet. By the way, I'm very proud of my alliteration in this sermon, so you're going to have to follow along with that. Scene one, a blasphemous banquet. Look with me at verse one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and drank wine in front of the thousand. So what that means is there's a big old party going on in Babylon. Everyone is starting to get a little bit tipsy here. King Belshazzar is uh, especially getting tipsy. And uh, he says he drank wine in front of the thousand. So usually the king would have been like kind of sequestered off on his own. But he's like feeling so good from all the drinking that's going on that he decides he's going to go out in front of all the people that uh, that are at this big party, all these thousand people. And then he has what he thinks is a good idea, but actually is a very bad idea. Let's see what that idea that he has was. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine... Look what he did. Commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So he says, hey, I know what will make this party even better. Let's go get those cups that Nebuchadnezzar stole from the temple in Jerusalem, and let's drink out of them, and let's use those things to toast to our gods. Verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This, simply put, is blasphemy. (laughs) This is like unspeakable what he's doing. You might remember in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought to Jerusalem, the Ark was about to to tip over, and Uzzah reached out, and he caught the Ark. And because he reached out and he touched the Ark to make it not fall over, God struck him dead immediately just for touching it. So you can imagine how God feels about what's going on here in Babylon. Belshazzar has taken these holy objects that have already been desecrated by being put in this temple to the pagan gods in Babylon, and he's actually taken them out and says, let's use these and drink out of them and, uh, and make toast to our God, but using them to these false idols. This basically, what, what Belshazzar is doing is 100% just spitting in the face of God himself. Right, that's that's the bottom line. What he's doing here, he's saying those those uh, Israelites think that their God is the true God. We're going to show them. We're going to use these things that are holy objects, and we're going to use them in worship of our own gods. And that, in simply put, is blasphemy. So what happened? Did God sit idly by while this took place? He did not. Something crazy happened. Actually, verse five. Look at this. Scene two, a scary sight. <laughs> Here we go. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Can you imagine? A hand appears out of nowhere, starts writing on the wall. Belshazzar is probably wondering if maybe he has, in fact, had a little bit too much to drink, right? Am I really seeing this? A hand shows up and starts writing on the wall. Continuing in verse 5, And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Verse 6, Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. This is supposed to be very funny. Like this is a comical thing that's taking place because we don't see yet what the writing on the wall is. So if this is like a movie with the, the editorial decision that's being made here, we see that there's a handwriting on the wall, but like now the camera zooms in on King Belshazzar and we just see his reaction to what he's seeing happen on the wall. And what we see is that he turns white And his knees knocked together and says, his limbs gave way. Now, here's the thing, church. I hesitate to tell you this because I guarantee this is the only thing that you're going to remember from this sermon. I'm going to tell you anyway. So the idea his limbs gave away, the literal interpretation of that is the joints of his loin were loosened. Now, use your imagination. What do you think that means? What it probably means, I'm sorry to say this in front of our special guest, he probably pooped his pants, right? That's kind of what the author is telling us. So we can all be mature about this, right? But that's, what, that's the, uh, the picture that we have here, th- that Belshazzar sees this writing on the wall. He immediately turns white. His knees are knocking together, and he soils himself, okay? So that's, uh, that's what is happening here. Come on, people, grow up. I mean, come on. <laughs> so that brings us now to scene three where we see a royal request, a royal request. Verse 7, The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around its neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. We've seen this story before, like I said, haven't we? This has all happened again. There's nothing new under the sun. This has all happened before. The king of Babylon gets a message of God that he doesn't understand, so he offers anyone who can interpret it a great reward. And once again, all these wise men that he has on staff, none of them can interpret it. I don't know if about you, but I'm starting to wonder if these wise men actually are ever successful at anything, right? They have a 100% failure rate so far in the book of Daniel. So why did why did they not know what it said? Probably, so either they, they could read the words and they didn't know what it meant, but probably they didn't even know what it said because the way that uh, the writing took place is there were no vowels and the consonants would have just been like smushed together. And so if imagine you take any like four English words and take all the vowels out and then smush the continents together. You wouldn't be able to make sense of what it said because you wouldn't know where the different words are or what the vowels were. And so that's probably what's happening here. It's just there there's There's just a bunch of like random letters on the wall, and nobody understands what it says. And so this time, it's the queen, probably the queen mother, who remembers that there's someone in the kingdom who had done this type of work before. Hey, maybe he's like, maybe we can get him on contract to do it again. I don't know if he's still interpreting things like this, but let's reach out to Daniel and let's see if he can do this. So they call him in. Skip down now with me to verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you. It's interesting. He doesn't get it, does he? I've heard that the spirit of the gods, lowercase g, is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now he gives them a promise. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." So just like the kings before him, he promises to lavish favor on Daniel if he can give him an answer. He says, I'm going to make you the third highest ranked person in the kingdom. Well, Daniel's heard all these things before, haven't, hasn't he? I love this. We can kind of almost kind of see the sense of, um, we'll, uh, we'll call it maturity in Daniel, right, as he ages. He's probably 80 years old here, and he just kind of doesn't care about any of that. He's already been made the third highest ruler in the kingdom, and uh, he's just not going to be bribed by anything. So look in verse 17. He doesn't even address him with the traditional, like, oh, king, live forever. Like, I just don't really sense any sort of fear in Daniel at all. He's just kind of like, okay, uh, you want me to come and tell you what God's telling you again? Here we go. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. I don't care about any of your gifts or promises of promotion But I will read the writing and let you know what it says. And that leads us to the next scene, which is a prophetic pronouncement. I lied to you. There's five scenes. I said there were four. There's five scenes. This is scene four, a prophetic pronouncement. So before Daniel interprets the handwriting, he gives Belshazzar a history lesson. So in verses 18 to 21, Daniel reiterates, he retells a story about what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He says because of his pride, because of the way he just lived only for himself, he, Nebuchadnezzar was humiliated before he knew that God is, in fact, on the throne. And then he was restored. He reminds him of the story that just took place. Why does he do that, that just took place? Why does he do that? Well, that leads to verse 22. Look there with me. It says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Oh, man. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You brought in these vessels to worship all these gods that are not alive, and yet there is a God who is alive, who your life is in his hands, and you have not honored him. You've desecrated him. Can you imagine how Daniel felt? I don't know the, like the timeline of all this, of if he knew what was going on at this party or if he was just kind of you know sitting in his house doing a crossword puzzle, and then he gets a call that he needs to go into the kingdom, and, and when he gets in there, he sees... The vessels from the temple being used in a pagan worship service. Imagine how heartbreaking and infuriating that would be. And so he speaks so boldly to the king here. He says, you knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You knew that. You know the story. There's no excuse for you. And look at what you're doing. How could you do this? You should have known better. <laughs> the parents, how many times do you tell your kids that, right? You should have known better. <laughs> I've told you this already. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you should have known better. Why didn't you learn from your father, Daniel says. If your father didn't get away with blatant pride against God himself, why would you? In Church, how much unnecessary suffering could we avoid if we would only learn from the mistakes of people who went before us? Think about all the good that Belshazzar could have done with his kingdom if he had listened to that lesson from the past, but he didn't. He went headlong right into the same sin. And man, (laughs) that's convicting to me. Yeah, how much pain could we avoid? (laughs) We could learn from people who made mistakes before us, and yet it's pride, isn't it? Is that ultimately what it boils down to, pride? Saying, yeah, that happened to that person, but I think it can work for me. (laughs) I think I can get away with it. Daniel says, you should have known better. Now he was about to face the consequences because... As Daniel is about to remind him, the writing is on the wall. You ever wonder where that phrase, the writing is on the wall, come from? It comes from Daniel chapter 5. For real. <laughs> Verse 24, the writing is now on the wall for his kingdom. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. I don't know how to say this. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. That's So those are the words that are on the wall. So maybe they read them and just didn't know what they meant. Maybe they couldn't understand them. But those are the words. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wa- wanting. Perez, which is the singular of parson, Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. He says, God has numbered your days. He's weighed you. He's found you wanting. And now he has given your kingdom to someone else. Verse 29. It's interesting. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So this is interesting. This is like probably one of the earliest lame duck political moves on record. That <laughs> Daniel has made the number three man now in the whole kingdom, and he's going to hold that position for almost four hours, right? <laughs> I don't understand. Maybe Belshazzar didn't believe it, right? I don't know. Maybe he, this was his kind of saying, like, oh, now I need to honor this guy because this God says my uh, kingdom's about to be taken away from me. Maybe if I make him the number three man, maybe this isn't going to happen. I don't know. But he makes him the number three in the kingdom, puts a chain of gold around his neck. And a few hours later, this prophecy would come true. Scene five is a just judgment or bye-bye Babylon. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now this is kind of understated, but these two verses really succinctly describe one of the most significant events of world history at that time, which was the fall of the Babylonian Empire. So this is it. The head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is now done, right? The Babylonian Empire has fallen. And the torso of silver has taken over, the Persian Empire. And we know from other sources of history, it's kind of cool, the way the Persians invaded the Babylonian Empire was the, the, there was a river that flowed under the walls of the kingdom to protect it. And so they actually diverted that water so that the water level was low enough that they could just kind of wade right in and go right under the wall And uh, an attack, uh, in a surprise attack. And what also is cool that we know is that history testifies to the fact that the night the Babylonian Empire fell, there was a major feast going on. How about that? The Bible's amazing, by the way. Time and time again, we find more and more historical evidence that what the Bible says is, in fact, true. But isn't it fascinating to think about the way God lined all this up? This attack was set in motion. The Persians were literally making their way under the walls at the exact same time that God's finger is writing the pronouncement of judgment on the wall for Belshazzar. And that just goes to show, again, what we saw at the beginning. God is just always completely and utterly 100% in control all the time. We saw it last week God humiliated Nebuchadnezzar and restored his kingdom back to him. We see it again here, the most powerful kingdom on earth, throwing a massive party, right? And then a few hours later, bam, it's all gone. In a moment. Our God is the same yesterday, today, forever. Our God that we worship today is sovereign in the same way that God was sovereign back in 539 B.C., Sovereign means completely in control. There is nothing that happens ever that surprises God. There is nothing that happens ever that catches God off guard. There is nothing that happens ever that isn't a part of God's will. And church, that should bring us comfort in a world That seems to be more and more off-kilter by the day. We should be grateful to know that above everything that is happening, there is a God who is ultimately directing all human events. And that all of history is moving toward this ending that we already know, that our risen Savior who is alive this day is going to come back and make all things right. Amen? There should be great comfort in that. We praise God for his sovereignty. And yet, his sovereignty can also be one of the hardest things to understand, can't it? Because if God is fully in control, there is an elephant in the room, isn't there? Which is, why does God let terrible things happen? If God is in control, why is there so much suffering? Why doesn't God do something about it? I just opened up a new. as I was preparing this sermon this week, I opened up a news website, top headline, five killed in Raleigh shooting, 15-year-old in custody. (laughs) It's heartbreaking. (laughs) Did God really want that to happen? Why? We pray for our brothers and sisters at Bible Baptist this week. It's impossible to escape the question, like, why, God? Why did you let that happen? Some of you have lost parents or lost a child or given birth to a stillborn child or any number of tragedies, right? And how do you not wonder, God, if you are sovereign, why did this happen? This is a difficult question. We can't just gloss over it. In fact, of all the arguments like that you can make against the existence of God, I think this is probably the most compelling argument that a person could make. If God is sovereign and all-powerful, why is there so much e- evil and, and tragedy and heartbreak in the world? It's a really hard question. It's not just, you can't just say to people in tragedy, like, oh, it's okay, God's in control. You don't have to be so sad about that, right? Or, hey, God's going to work this out for good. I think the first thing we do as we think about this question is just acknowledge it's really hard, isn't it? And then the second thing we need to do before anything else is the thing that Nebuchadnezzar failed to do and the thing that Belshazzar failed to do, which is that we just need to have a humility. Humility that God is God and we are not. I was listening to someone this week talking about the sovereignty of God in the midst of tragedy He's saying that like the, we need to understand that God isn't just in control of everything that happens in the world. He's proudly in control. God's not like ashamed of like, yeah, I'm in control. Sorry, everything is like so tough. Right? He's not like Urkel, like, oh, did I do that? Like, God is not ashamed of his sovereignty. God is proudly in control. We think about Job, the story of Job. Job facing what seemed like just senseless and unending suffering and tragedy for really no reason. He was a righteous man. And he loses everything in the blink of an eye. And so like you would do or like I would do, he starts complaining to God. And what does God say? He asks him a question. You remember the question he asks him? simply this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Who's God here? Is it you or is it me? And God is not being cold or heartless here. Like, he's not saying, like, grow up. I don't care about all that. I'm God, you're not. No. He's reminding Job the most loving thing possible, which is I am God and you are not and that leads us to our third way to approach God's sovereignty recognizing first of all that it is difficult and we're not going to have all the answers to these questions number one number two we need to be able to be humble to say there is a level in which God knows more than I do and that's a good thing and then the third thing we can do is just rest in his sovereignty Rest in the fact that God is sovereign over all things because the reality is that evil exists and horrific suffering happens. That is just the reality of the world we live in. And because of that reality, that li- this leaves us really with three options of how we can respond to the reality of, of the fact that evil and suffering exists in the world. Now, this is kind of smushing together a whole lot of philosophy and a, like a gross oversimplification, oversimplification of it. But basically, as I see it, there's three options. Option one, there's no God. All suffering is random. All of life is meaningless. If you want to try to create meaning in the days that you have, go ahead but all of the suffering, everything that happens to us is random and is not directed by anything outside. There is no God. Good luck with trying to find meaning in this life. That's option one. That option is not super appealing to me. Option two, there is a God... But he's powerless to do anything about the suffering. There's a God, but like the suffering that goes on is outside of his control. He can't do anything about it. Or he's just a distant God. Like Maybe he set the world in motion, but now he's taking a step back, and it's just kind of human beings are, are running the show. It's option two. I think that leaves us with just one more option. That there is a God. He is in control. And even though I'm limited in my ability to understand the world and know why certain things happen, that same God loves me and cares for me and walks alongside me in my suffering. That same God, who is sovereign over all things, never leaves me or forsakes me. That God is perfect in his power. That God promises to make all things right and just in the end. He promises that the evildoer is not going to go unpunished. And that God calls me to take refuge in him forever and ever. There's still unanswered questions in option three. But praise God... That we can know our suffering is not random. And we we won't understand it. Because we weren't there when God laid the foundations of the world. But we can rest in it. He is good. He loves you. And this is good news. So as we near the end of our first half of Daniel here, I just think God has given us this book because we just need to remember time and time again God is faithful and he is sovereign over all things and we are taking a, over, a, just a snapshot of a time when God's people were in the midst of just the whole world being com- in complete upheaval and even in spite of that God was always in control. This story takes place towards the end of Daniel's life. And he's about to go through one more test. Spoiler alert. These events take place in the end of Daniel's life. I don't know how many years there were. I don't know what life was like for him in in between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Maybe there were times when he was continuing to doubt, continuing to question, continuing to wonder, God, why haven't you done anything Why are we still in exile? Why does it look like evil is prevailing over us? Why are you allowing us to be governed by these people who just profane your name, God? God says, because I'm in control, and I've been in control the whole time. And nothing happens outside of my will. Praise God for that, amen. We need that reminder. Like Cody walking Pam down, saying, I'm here. It's okay. I'm still here, and I'm not going anywhere. God says the same thing to us. We need to read about it in his word. The times that I am most tempted to doubt God's faithfulness are the times where I'm not doing a good job of studying his word and being reminded of that over and over and over again. We need this reminder because we are a forgetful people. And I am the forgetfullest of all. We need this reminder. He is faithful. I'm right here. I'm hanging on to you. Jesus says, even if you let go for a moment, I'm still right here. You can trust me. How do we know that God is faithful and we can, he can be trusted? Because he sent us his son. And he who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave us up, gave him up for us all. How will he not then graciously give us all things? Amen. Nebuchadnezzar passed away. So did Belshazzar. So did Darius. So did every king after that. But our king is on the throne forever. He is sovereign. He is faithful. So church, by the grace of God, may he help you trust him more this day and in the days to come, no matter what lies ahead. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We praise you for this reminder that we need again. (laughs) That you are faithful, that nothing happens outside of your control. God, we confess our complete and utter inability to understand all that is going on, to understand why certain things happen. We don't get it. Lord, even in that (laughs) inability to understand, help us to have humble hearts. And to recognize your faithfulness, God, no matter what. You are God. We are not. We weren't there when you laid the foundation of the world. But when you laid the foundation of the world, you were thinking of us. We were in your mind. You created us. You didn't have to. Then when we rebelled against you, Father, you sent your son to save us. You didn't have to. And then he rose again. So that way we could spend eternity with you and with one another, with brothers and sisters all over the world, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, worshiping you. You didn't have to, God, but you did. We praise you. We thank you. You are worthy of praise, God. Help us to remember your faithfulness. In Jesus' precious name, amen.